This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. If you're visiting here this morning uh, or you don't know who I am, uh, my name is Luke Shelnut. I'm the youth leader here at Grace Bible Church. Uh, I'm not the typical uh, teaching pastor at this church. Uh, He's on sabbatical uh, this summer. And so uh, many of us, most of which are elders in training, have been uh, going through uh, the book of Colossians. And so we find ourselves in Colossians chapter 2. And it is my honor, and I I do mean that, uh, to be able to bring God's word to you this morning uh, and next week as well. So let's get to our passage. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul is writing this, and he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let me pray one last time for our time in his word. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we know that it's true, that it is indeed your very word. Lord, I pray that Christ would be exalted this morning through the preaching of your word, that you would help us know your truth, that this would be a time of worship to you, God, that you would clear distractions from our minds, that you would strengthen me in my weakness, or that you would be exalted in praise. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. When I was a kid, there was uh, this toy brand called Spy Gear. Uh, and I don't know if it's still around anymore. I don't play with them anymore. Uh, but uh, the Spy Gear, they, they made a lot of different kind of spy toys that make you feel like a cool spy. Uh, I had a few of them, one of which was like a, a motion detector, and you set it like in the hall. Uh, and when someone walks by, you get notified, like, oh, someone's coming. Uh, I had a night vision goggles, which is really just like uh, green sunglasses with two flashlights on the side. <laughs> kind of defeats the purpose of night vision, because now everyone gets to see, but you're just looking at everything in green. Uh, and what, one of the ones that I used probably most often was, it was this hidden safe. Uh, and it was designed to look like a book. And so you keep it in your bookshelf, uh, and people just walk by, oh, it's just a book. Uh, but if you pulled it out, you'd see it has a lock on it, and you can open it up, and it's a safe. Uh, and in this safe, I had all my favorite things, uh, my favorite Hot Wheels, uh, Mark McGuire card, Sacagawea dollar coin. Those were really cool. Uh, I had a rock. I don't know why I had a rock, but I thought it was cool. Uh, and a few other things. But one of my favorite items was a Valentine's Day card. Uh, it was not from a girl. I, I was too young. Uh, it was from Jordan Sinelli. Uh, if, if you know Jordan, he plays electric guitar sometimes. Uh, and, and the card on the front, it said, 
best buds. Uh, and uh, he probably wrote something on it like, you're my best friend, and he explained why, I, I don't know. Uh, but every so often, you know, I'd, I'd open up that safe, uh, and I'd look through all of my favorite things, and I always went back to the Valentine's Day card. I was reminded of the friendship that we had. Uh, I was reminded of the care that he had for me, and it meant a lot to me. Do I still have this today? Of course not. I, th I threw it away years ago. I don't know where it is. <laughs> but the point is that the, the card, at least at the time, it communicated a lot to me. Uh, it showed me the love and the friendship that we had for each other. And in a way, we see a little bit of that here in this passage. At this point in his letter, Paul is now turning to the church in a very personal address. Paul starts off by saying that he wants them to know how great a struggle he has for them. The word for struggle is the Greek noun agon, where we get the word agony. And this verse is closely connected to 129, where he uses the verb form agonizomai. And if you remember from last week, Matt showed us the difficulties and, and the hard work that characterizes ministry. And here we see Paul's own difficulties, his struggles, his agony for this church. And Paul's not just saying, hey, I, I, I think of you guys every once in a while. He's not just saying, hey, I, I hope the best for you. But it's an agony. It, it is a deep love and concern for these people. In this passage, we see Paul's personal address as he shares his concern for this church. And specifically, this concern is regarding their love for one another and their doctrine of Christ. He then instructs them on how they can address these specific concerns. So this morning, we're gonna look at both Paul's concern for the church and Paul's instruction for the church. All right, that's our roadmap for this morning and early afternoon. Uh, let's jump in here. First, Paul's concern, verses one through five. The first thing we see is that Paul's concern extends to many. Verse one, who is it that he's concerned for? Who is he agonizing over? Look at verse one. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle and agony I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. His struggle is for the people in the Lycus Valley, those in Colossae, in Laodicea, and possibly even Hierapolis. What's striking is that he mentions those who have not seen him face to face. Remember, Paul's in chains, and he is yet to visit the church in Colossae. And he knows some of the people, such as Epaphras, in whom he's getting the report from, but there are many in whom he has not met yet. And it is even these people, these people in whom Paul agonizes over, it is these people whom he has not met that he says, I have a great struggle, agony for you. Isn't that incredible? Is that not something that we can learn from? Do you have a heart for the saints? Do you agonize over them? Do you, do, do you care deeply for the saints? What about those in whom you've never met? What about those who aren't in your inner circle, who aren't your closest friends? You care for those you don't really connect with? You know, those who sit 
on the other side of the church? Or those first hour people? Those guys are crazy. I, I said the same thing to them about you, so. <laughs> what about the missionaries we support? What about our brothers and sisters in Nigeria and Afghanistan and North Korea and Somalia and all around the world? Do you care for those people? Do you agonize for them? They are just as much as your brothers and sisters as those who are sitting next to you right now. Paul has never met many of these Christians, and yet he agonizes over them. He struggles greatly for them. How is it that we struggle for someone? What does that even mean? What does that look like to struggle for someone? I believe the greatest way that we can struggle for someone and the way in which we see Paul struggle for these people is by caring for their spiritual well-being. Do we need to care for the physical needs of others? Yes. There are great practical ways in which we can and we should show the love of Christ to others. But what we see here is that Paul is addressing their spiritual needs. What is he agonizing over? He is concerned about the spiritual dangers that threaten these churches. Whether he knows these believers or not, that doesn't matter to him. He is concerned for their spiritual health and their spiritual well-being. And he knows of the spiritual dangers that they face. He knows of the false teaching that is starting to infiltrate this church, and this concerns him. And he cares deeply for their spiritual health. That's what we see in this passage. We see that in other places as well. 2 Corinthians 11, you don't have to turn there, but maybe write down 2 Corinthians 11. I won't read it word for word. I'll kind of summarize it. Listen to what he says to the church in Corinth. He says that he's received 39 lashes five times. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned. He was adrift at sea. Danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from his own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. Sleepless nights. Hunger, thirst, without food. Cold and exposed. And listen to this, verse 28. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. See, the saints weigh heavy on his heart. He cares for the church. He cares for their spiritual well-being. Does the spiritual health and well-being of others weigh heavy on your heart? Are you involved in such a way with others that you are aware of their spiritual struggles and their spiritual dangers? Does your heart agonize over their spiritual burdens? You know, being part of TYG, of the youth group here, I get a real inside look of the struggles and the burdens of our students. And our youth have heavy burdens. Our young people, they have heavy, heavy burdens. They have temptations I've never had to face. They are in the thick of spiritual warfare. It's not all fun and games. I often come home from youth group on a Wednesday night and I can't sleep. And I'm wide awake with their burdens on my heart. And I struggle. And I agonize. 
Now, don't get me wrong, there are many times I don't. There are many times I lose compassion for others. Do you ever lose compassion for others? You know, those that, that you love, but man, you're tired of loving them the same way. I confess, e- even as, as I was preparing this week, someone not, not from TYG, someone was texting me and, and they wanted to call me to discuss the struggle that they were going through. You know, hey, you know, I, I, I gotta call you, can, can we talk? And to me, it, it seemed trivial. And I thought, come on, right now? We're doing this again? I have a sermon I have to write. <laughs> yeah. It was at that moment I realized how hypocritical, how uncompassionate I was. I was literally at this point in my study. I was like, okay, God, I get it. (laughs) And so I confessed my sin. I got up and I made the phone call. We ought to have a deep concern for the spiritual well-being of one another. Parents, are you taking the time to address the spiritual needs of your children? Not just making sure they don't hit the brother in the head with the block. That's good. But are you making them aware of their inward rebellion against the holy God? Grandparents, you possess great wisdom and experience. And you are able to speak and to captivate your grandchildren in a way that no one else can. Speak to them the truth of God. Friends, We ought to speak to each other in a way that is open with our sin, open with our struggles, and we care for each other's spiritual well-being. It's not always easy. It's not always comfortable. But my challenge to you is to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. And that's coming from someone who struggles with that. Now remember, you're not the Holy Spirit. And you cannot change the hearts of those you love. But God has given you his truths to share. So share it. God has given you the freedom to pray to him. So pray. Paul has a deep concern for this church. And it is the spiritual well-being that Paul now begins to address. And that's what we're going to look at next in the next two points the first spiritual well-being that he begins to address is that Paul's concern is regarding love. Verses two, Paul's concern is regarding love. Paul starts by addressing the heart. Look at verse two. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love. Now the heart is not to be mistaken to simply how they feel. Or, or, or even simply their own affections, maybe like we would use uh, heart today, talking about our own affections and our feelings. In ancient writings, that'd be more referred to as the bowels, right? or the bowels would be referred to their feelings. But the heart is much more. The heart would often refer to the person's inner being, the center of their personality, the core of who they are, that their affections and their emotions, yes, but it's much more than that. It's also their will and their thoughts and their outlook. And it is the heart and the, the very inner being and the mindset of these Christians that Paul is addressing. And he does this first by saying, your hearts may be encouraged and knit together in love. See, love needs to be at the very core of the believer. Christianity is not just this, this mindless intellect or, or belief. 
Christianity is characterized by love. Jesus says in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. John says in 1 John 4, he says, you can't say that you love God but not love your brother. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if you spoke in tongues of men and angels, if you had all knowledge, if you had faith that could move mountains, if you gave everything away, even your own life, but you did not have love, it's for nothing. Love is at the very core of the believer and it is the the defining characteristic of our life. And for us to be knit together in love, it speaks of the unity in which we have in Christ. Ephesians 4, 3 says, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Beloved, we ought to be eager to maintain the unity with one another. I believe one of the prerequisites to love and unity is humility. It's really hard to love someone with a prideful heart, is it not? How can you? How can you truly love someone with a prideful heart? But humility opens the door for love and unity. Paul gives such a wonderful example of humility and love in Philippians chapter two as he shows the humility of Christ. As he says that Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see the humble, sacrificial love that Christ has shown his people? This Christ who is preeminent, we saw it in chapter one, right? Remember Matt showed us the preeminence of Christ. This preeminent God, the the, the creator of all, this Christ, he humbled himself, adding humanity to himself, lived a perfect, sinless life. And yet he died a sinner's death by the hands of sinful men hanging on that tree, bearing the wrath of God for his people, forsaken by the Father. What love. What love that he would humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. 1 John three sixteen says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And what does John keep saying? He says, and we ought to lay down our lives for our, our brothers. What is the response to this, to the love of Christ that we've received, that we would lay down our lives for the brothers? We ought to have the love of Christ for one another, and we ought to have the humility of Christ within ourselves. Put on humility, beloved, and put on the love of Christ. Christian, there, there is no room for pride with one another. Let us all stand at the foot of the cross together and realize that we are all on equal playing ground here. We all need the love of Christ equally. You are no better than they, and I'm no better than you. We are equal at the cross. We are equally deserving of the wrath of God. And if you are in Christ, then you equally receive the perfect love of God that we are all equally undeserving of. So what pride do we bring to the cross? Instead, let us be filled with the love of Christ and in great humility seek to love one another. Let us then, as Paul says, be knit together in love, in unity with one another. 
Not dependent on, on, on who they are or, or even your own feelings towards them. But let your love for others be the outpouring of the love that you've received from Christ. Remember, Paul has not met most of these people and yet he agonizes over them. Why? How? Because his love for these people is not motivated by his love and feelings towards these specific people. He hasn't met them. It wasn't based on preferences or who he liked or didn't like or who he got along with or who was in the stage, same stage of life as him. His love for these people was motivated by his love for Christ and the common bond and unity they have in the Spirit. So let us then be knit together in love. See the humility and the love of Christ and be moved to love others in the same way. Then he goes on, and the next, what, what we see is that Paul's concern is regarding doctrine. It's regarding doctrine. We've seen Paul's desire for them to be encouraged and knit together in love, and now we see his desire for them not just to love one another, but for them to have right doctrine as well. Now next week, we're gonna look at the specific false teachings that these churches were encountering. We're gonna really dive deeper in that next week, but today we'll look at it a little bit. As made clear in chapter one, one of the main doctrinal truths that these false teachers were attacking were the deity and the sufficiency of Christ. And so in light of that, Paul's prayer, his hope, his struggle, his desire for these churches is that they would, as it says in verse two, reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. What on earth does that mean? Is that a run on? I don't know. The false teachers were attacking the deity and the sufficiency of Christ. And if you look at any false religion, one or both of these two truths will be attacked. They will say that either Jesus is not God or that Jesus alone is not enough. And they were diminishing who Christ is in his deity, and they were diminishing what he has done in the sufficiency of his work. Anything that diminishes Christ is a false gospel. And this is what was being attacked in the Lycus Valley. And Paul's concern, his struggle for them, was that they would be assured of the truth of Christ. Paul desires that they would be assured of the deity and sufficiency of Christ. Because when, when you are assured of the truths of Christ and his deity and his sufficiency, and you have confidence in the riches of Christ, then there's a difference in how you live your life. There's conviction. There's change. There's confidence that leads to boldness when one is assured of the things of Christ. The, this inward conviction, it leads to outward change. In fact, that's what the word understanding in verse two actually means when he says to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. That word understanding, it's not just an intellectual understanding, it reveals action. It refers to applying biblical truths to your everyday life. You are assured of who Christ is. And so because of who he is, you're confident that he's worthy of your life to deny yourself daily, to pick up your cross and follow him and live for his glory. You're assured that he does work all things together for good for those who love him. And so you're at peace during hardship knowing he is conforming you to the image of Christ. 
You are assured of the riches stored up for you in heaven. It's there, it's secure. So you live boldly knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. You are assured that nothing can separate you from the love of God. So you live with no fear knowing you are forever secured in the hands of God. If there is no assurance of the things of Christ, how can we live boldly? We live in fear. We live timidly. We live unsure of the promises that are secure for us. We live unsure of the one in whom we live for. So be assured, beloved, of the truths of Christ. And Paul goes on to say that it is in Christ in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The word hidden is interesting. Why would he say hidden when he just said in 126 that the mystery that was hidden has now been revealed? Well, these false teachers claimed to contain a secret knowledge, a, a hidden knowledge, a superior knowledge, one outside of Christ. And Paul's saying, don't search for these hidden truths outside of Christ. He is encouraging these churches to look to Christ as the only place in which the treasures of wisdom and knowledge can be found. To search for treasures and wisdom and knowledge outside of Christ is foolishness. Paul is saying that there is no hidden spiritual knowledge necessary for salvation and sanctification outside of Jesus Christ. He is the source of all true spiritual knowledge. We need not look outside of Christ for any source of superior holiness or superior knowledge. What can anyone or anything else offer compared to the perfect, infinite, superior, holy Jesus Christ? It is in him in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ does not need to be supplemented with the Book of Mormon or the Book of Shadows or the Zohar or the Mahavastu or anything else. Christ is sufficient. And Paul wants to assure the believers of this so that as he says in verse four, so that no one would delude them with plausible arguments. He knows and he's concerned of the false teaching that is penetrating the church. Now while Paul does give a stern warning, he also rejoices from afar, from prison, of the good report that he's heard from them. As he says in verse five, for though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This tells us that even though their faith was strong, Paul still found it necessary to warn them. Even though their faith was strong, Paul still agonizes over them. Beloved, do not let your guard down. Your faith may be strong, and praise God if it is. But do not become overconfident lest we put our guard down and we would be deluded with plausible argument. We ought to continue to stand firm in what we know is true. Because you can be assured that the enemy will attack. In fact, both these words, the word for good order and the word for, for firmness were both military words. The word for good order was a word that referred to a line of soldiers ready for battle. It's good order. And the word for firmness was a word that referred to the solidity of a formation of soldiers. They were solid, together, firm. 
there is a spiritual warfare. And let us together stand firm with one another against any plausible arguments, against any false teaching that might diminish the work of Christ or distract us from his truth. And let the assurance of our understanding and knowledge of Christ create in us then a boldness and a confidence to live for Christ. And that is indeed what Paul desires for this church. And so in doing so, he continues by giving them instruction on how to do this. He instructs them. That's our next section. Paul's instruction, verses six through seven. And he says in verse six, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now before we jump into the instruction, let's not miss this. It's not common that we see all three, Christ, Jesus, and Lord, all used together at once. In fact, I think this might be the only time. There's clearly an emphasis here. Paul's not coming up with a first, middle, and last name. Oh, Christ, Jesus, Lord, that sounds good. No, he specifically credits Jesus as Christ and as Lord. To be Christ means that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior. And these believers had received Jesus as Christ, as Savior, because he is the only Savior to receive, because there is no other Savior outside of Jesus. But he's not only our Christ, he is our Lord. And to be Lord means that he is our ruler, that he is our King. Some people want Jesus as Christ, they want him as Savior, but they don't want him as Lord. They don't want him as King. Jesus cannot be your Savior and not be your King. To have received Jesus as Savior is to receive him as King. To receive Jesus as Christ is to receive him as Lord. And he is Lord over your life, over every aspect of your life. And he's the one supreme Lord, the only Lord. Paul says he is the Lord. He's not one of many lords. He's the one and only Lord of our life. And so our aim and our goal is to submit to him as Lord in all things. So Paul says, since you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, now what? What happens next? What is the natural response? He says, so walk in him. That's our next point, to walk in Christ, verse six. And Paul uses the term to walk. It's not an uncommon term. He uses it quite often. It refers to a a daily, an ongoing conduct, a, a way of life. No longer walking, following the course of this world, but now it is walking in the direction of Christ. That your life is now defined by your pursuit of Christ. It's not this mountaintop experience. It's not saying amen on Sunday, but living a completely different way Monday through Friday at work. It's not saying a prayer when you're younger, and so that now you're in, but your life remains the same. It is a change in direction. It is a walk, a consistent pursuit of Christ. And the Christian stumbles, and the Christian falls on this walk, yes. But nevertheless, by the grace of God, stands back up and continues to walk towards Christ. If you have indeed received Jesus as Christ and Lord, then you will continually walk in him. Are you walking in him? Are you walking? What does that look like? How how specifically does the Christian walk in Christ? Well, Paul lists four participles here to tell us how. 
He says by being rooted, by being built, by being established, and abounding in thanksgiving. And what we're going to do is is group the first three together as one, and we'll leave the fourth one by itself. So being rooted and being built and being established, I'm summarizing that by saying being firm. Being firm in Christ. I believe these were meant to belong together as a mixture of metaphors. The first being an agricultural metaphor, uh, being rooted, being rooted, an agricultural metaphor. This word for rooted is in the perfect tense, suggesting that it's already been done in the past. In fact, I think the NASB communicates this a little more clearly as it says, having been firmly rooted. It's in the past that if you are in Christ, you have already been firmly rooted in him. It's not a command in which we strive after. This is a truth that's already been done. And the idea is that of a deeply, a tree that has been deeply rooted in rich soil. Picture a, a big oak tree with, with deep roots. That thing's not moving, right? It'll get windy and it's windy, windy, but it's not moved by strong winds. It's not easily pushed over. And those who have truly received Christ Jesus the Lord are secure in him. They're not pushed over by false doctrine. Their faith is secured in Christ. It's not our faith that's so great and which secures us, but it's the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, who secures us. The second metaphor is an architectural metaphor, being built up like a building. While rooted is in in the perfect tense, in the past, built up is a present tense participle suggesting continuous action. It's the idea of this continual growth. It's not just being planted and rooted, but it's being built up. It's to be growing. A Christian cannot be firmly rooted in Christ, but not being built up, not growing. A true Christian will be growing in him. And it will look different for different people. And our pathways might look slightly different, but the end is the same. The goal is the same, to grow in Christ and to glorify him. And we do this by submitting to the word of God and being empowered by the Holy Spirit, all of which is done by the grace of God. Are you growing in Christ? Are you growing in him? Can you see the difference that the Spirit has made in your life? Can you say that your life is different as a result of Christ? You ought to. Because those who walk in Christ are being built up in him. And the last metaphor is a legal one, being established or established in the faith. What does it mean to be established in the faith? It means to be established, it speaks of, in a legal way, of a guarantee, like a, like a contract that has been ratified. This speaks of a proven, genuine faith. Not a fickle faith, but, but, but a faith that is established in Christ. Assured and confident of the things of Christ. Is your faith established in Christ? Is your faith and your hope fully set on Christ? Not on the security of your job, not on your social security or 401k, or or, or who sits in the Oval Office, but is it in Christ? To have established faith in Christ, it, it, it creates a freedom, it creates a boldness now to live for him because you're assured and you're confident in the reigning power of Christ. And so when your faith is established in him, 
You can let everything else go and know I'm gonna live for him. I have confidence in him. Lastly, we see to give thanks in Christ. To give thanks in Christ, as he says at the end of verse uh, seven, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the last instruction. The final part of simple in this verse is to abound in thanksgiving. And this kind of completes the circle. This is, this is the final part of the puzzle, I believe. If you think about everything else that, that, that we've read, that it, it is when we are full of God's love in our hearts, when, when we are firm in our understanding of the doctrines of Christ, when we've received him as Christ and Lord, when we walk in him, rooted and built up and established, it is then that we respond in the abundance of thanksgiving. How can we not? How would that not be our response? We have to be like the leper who it says in Luke 17 that when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. See what you have been healed from, beloved. You were a leper. See the amazing love and mercy and grace of Christ and praise his name with a loud voice and fall on your face at the feet of Jesus and give him thanks. Do you overflow with thanksgiving? Abounding in thanksgiving? Not just being thankful, but giving thanks and abounding in thanksgiving. Are we not so easily discontent? I know I am. But let's put things in perspective a little bit here. We are rich in Christ. Why complain? Why grumble? How long will we go today until our next complaint? Maybe we'll make it to dinner. Maybe not even. Maybe the ice cream social? They don't have mint chip? Ugh. Come on. Let us remember the riches we have in Christ. And let us overflow with thanksgiving, knowing what we have in him. I mean, it's silly to complain when you think about it. We're full in Christ. What are we complaining about? Do you actively give thanks to God for what you have in Christ? Notice, Paul doesn't instruct them to begin being thankful. He instructs them to abound abound. I don't think it's possible to overthink God. So don't worry, keep thanking him. All that we have is by his grace, none of which we have earned or we deserve. Thanksgiving to God is the natural response to understanding the riches that we have in Christ. So abound in thanksgiving. And let me be clear. The point of this instruction to, to walk, to, to be firm, to be thankful, it does not in any means make you right with God, nor should it be the main point of emphasis. The central point is not that we walk. The central point is Christ. That we have received Christ Jesus the Lord. And it is in him we do any of this. If you have truly received Christ, if he truly is your Lord, then the walking will come and you will be firm in Christ, and you will overflow in thanksgiving. So be careful not to get caught up in the doing. Be caught up in Jesus, who is your Christ, 
who is your Lord. As we close, I want to direct your gaze upon Christ. Christ really is the central point of this passage. Yes, we see Paul's concern for the church, his concern for them to love one another, his concern for them to have right doctrine. Yes, we see Paul's instruction to the church on how to address these concerns. But all of this centers around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It is in Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It is in Christ in whom we place our faith in. It is in Christ in whom we receive as our Savior and King. It is in Christ in whom we walk in and we're rooted and built up in. It is in Christ in whom we abound in thanksgiving. You see, it's all about Christ. And if you do not know this Christ, I urge you to draw near. Draw near to Christ. Christ is our hope. He is our Savior. And He is all that we need. And He is fully and completely sufficient. There is no salvation found apart from Christ. It is not found in your works. It is not found in your intellect or anything else that you may bring to the table. It is found in Christ and Christ alone. If you do not know Christ, come to him and come in humility, repentant of your sins against a holy God and place your faith fully in the finished work of Christ. Now if you are indeed in Christ, if you have union with him, if you have received him as Christ Jesus the Lord, then you know the joy it is to live for Christ. And you know that no one is more worthy of worship and praise than Jesus Christ. So Christian, I say to you, heed the words of Paul. Let the love that you received from God flow through you to show that same kind of love to one another, even those in whom you wouldn't normally love. Let the truths of who Christ is create in you an assurance, a confidence to live boldly for him, no matter the consequences. And let the riches and the grace of God stir in you a heart of thanksgiving that abounds more and more. He is worthy of all glory and praise. He is worthy of our lives. So go and live for the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are worthy. Thank you, Lord God, for your love, for your grace and salvation we have in Christ. 